Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> so as Keith said, this is our third week in our More Parables series, where we're continuing our theme from back in the fall, looking at Jesus' parables. Uh, if you weren't here the last two weeks, you might have missed me saying uh, that 35% of Jesus' recorded words are parables. So whether we like parables or not, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to wrestle with them. And um, we've been doing our best over the last few weeks to look at these short stories and try to discern what Jesus is teaching through them. And this morning, we're going to look at a very interesting, challenging parable. It's what's known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to gather around your words together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to attend to what we read right now. I pray that you'd grant us understanding. And I pray that your Holy Spirit um, would take these words and my words and speak beyond them directly to our hearts um, to say what it is you want to say, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. All right, let's go back to the top. Let's look at that setup again. Peter, who I always find to be the most relatable of the disciples, asks a very relatable question, which is basically, Jesus, Rabbi, what do you say about forgiveness? 
You know, the rabbis had different opinions. And actually, the norm at the time was for rabbis to say, you should forgive your brother or sister three times for the same offense. After that, no more. And so Peter has probably picked up on the fact that Jesus seems a bit more merciful than the average rabbi. And so he doubles the usual number of times, and then he rounds it off to seven, probably because seven was considered the number of perfection uh, by the Jews. And he probably expects that Jesus is going to be like, whoa, whoa there, Peter, that's a little much, you know. Um, but no, Jesus says, not, not seven times, Peter, 77 times. And actually, there's uh, some disagreement in the manuscripts over whether Jesus says 77 times or 70 times 7 times, which would be 490. But I don't think it matters either way, because either way, the point Jesus is clearly making is that that's the wrong question to ask. You know, I don't think Jesus is giving us a number here. I don't think he expects us to keep a logbook. You know, oh, I see in my record of grievances here that you're on number 74. So just so you know, two more, and then we're done. Clearly, that's not the spirit of Jesus' teaching here, right? He's saying, you're asking the wrong question, Peter. And then he tells this parable to illustrate the point. And he begins with a familiar line, right? The kingdom of heaven is like. Two weeks ago, I encouraged us, when we hear that phrase, which begins a lot of Jesus' parables, to hear something like, the way God works is similar to this. Or, the way God's kingdom spreads and operates is similar to this. And this week I thought, well, I'll add another possibility here. The inescapable nature of reality is like this. And Jesus says, basically, if you're asking that question, what's the limit? How many times am I supposed to forgive my brother or sister? You're missing something about what the kingdom of heaven is like. You're missing something about the inescapable, fundamental nature of reality. So let's look at the parable again. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants, and one of the servants owes 10,000 bags of gold. Um, the word there is actually a talent of gold. So you might ask, well, how much is a talent? One talent of gold would have been 20 years' wages. So, how much does he owe? Well, I'm not real good at math, so you can correct me. <laughs> you think I got this wrong. But it's not too hard to figure out, right? There's 10,000 talents. Each one is 20 years' worth of wages. So, that's 200,000 years' worth of wages. So, let's put a, year, a year's wages at like $35,000. What does that come out to? It comes out to about $7 billion of debt. This is an insane amount of debt. Right? This has got to be the worst servant ever. I don't even know what he could have done to accrue that, that, that amount of debt. I mean, did he burn down the palace twice? Right? $7 billion. Jesus is being intentionally absurd here, right, to make a point. 
This guy has an unpayable debt. There is no way that he can recover from this hole that he is in. This makes student loans look like nothing, right? Now, at first, the master orders that his family and his possessions be sold in order to pay off the debt. But the servant begs. He says, please, be patient with me. Seven billion dollars, just give me more time. I just need more time. And we're told that the, the master looks on him with pity and then cancels the debt. He doesn't set him up with a repayment plan. He just cancels it, which means that he agrees to absorb the debt himself, right? He's owed all that money, $7 billion, but he just says, I'm going to let it go. Why does he let it go? Because he looks on the servant and feels pity. I don't particularly like that translation. I prefer something like, he looks on him and is filled with compassion. Some places that same word is, is translated that way, way in scripture. He's filled with compassion. He feels sad for him. And so he forgives the debt. lets him go. Can you imagine the relief? Right? I don't have to go to prison. My family doesn't have to go to prison. I don't even have to worry about this debt anymore. But Jesus doesn't tell us that the servant feels any relief at all. He doesn't say that the servant thanks the master. He just goes right to telling us what the servant does with this undeserved freedom that he's been given. And what does he do? He goes and he finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred silver coins. Now, a hundred silver coins wasn't nothing. Uh, it would have been about a hundred days of work. You know, if you suddenly were missing a third of a year's salary, that, that would be a pretty substantial hit, right? So it's not nothing. But let's keep in mind, it is about 600,000 times less than he owed the master, right? And uh, so anyway, the servant <clears throat> goes to the fellow servant, demands the money, and he says, be patient with me. I'll pay it all back, which actually was in the realm of possibility, 100 silver coins. But this servant, he doesn't look on the other servant with pity and compassion. He just says, pay me what you owe me, and sends him off to prison. So, word gets around to the master. This guy who you just forgave $7 billion worth of debt, just sent somebody else to prison for 12000 And so the master calls him in. Wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Should you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then he sends him to the jailers to be tortured. And then Jesus gives what is one of the scariest lines in all of his teaching. 
Right? This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Oh, you know, Sometimes I wish the parable just ended with the $7 billion being forgiven, and that was it. And we didn't have anything else to deal with. But it doesn't end there. Now, before we talk about the scary aspect of this parable, I want us to really notice the positive, all right? Because there's a lot of positive. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It is like someone being released from an unpayable debt, right? Radical forgiveness is heavenly. The economy of heaven is an economy of mercy. Anytime somebody looks at another person who has wronged them and says, I forgive you, that is like the light of heaven breaking through into this world. But even though this parable can bring a lot of comfort, and it should bring a lot of comfort, especially if you feel like you're carrying an unpayable debt, clearly Jesus has designed it to also be a warning. And the warning is that if we are unforgiving or unmerciful, there are consequences to that. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is the fundamental nature of reality. What, what Jesus is doing through this parable is he is illustrating something that he taught earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. The Apostle James says something very similar as well. Uh, later in the New Testament, he writes, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, the law that gives freedom, James tells us earlier in the letter, is the law of love your neighbor as yourself. That was the law that the master in the parable followed when he looked on this servant, felt compassion, and released him, right? And it's appropriate that it's called the law that gives freedom, because it literally led to the servant's release. Love your neighbor as yourself is the law that gives freedom. But after the servant is released, he does not speak and act as someone who lives by that law, right? Instead, he judges the other servant. And because of that, judgment without mercy is shown to him, right? So the parable illustrates both what Jesus and James say. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, some of you may be thinking, Ryan, I thought that God was loving and merciful, and yet at the end of this parable, Jesus is saying that God is going to hand people over to be tortured. That's... That's real. I don't know what to do with that. If you're thinking that way, I want to encourage you to remember three things. Okay, one, don't forget the first half of the parable. Clearly, the first half teaches that God's first choice is scandalous forgiveness, right? Unpayable debts being forgiven. Also, remember, unmerciful people do harm to other people that God loves. 
So if God loves everybody, at some point, something's got to be done to people who persist in unforgiveness and unmercy, right? And then thirdly, another thing to keep in mind is that language that's used. The master hands over the servant. Right? Jesus says that there's something about this that is the way that your heavenly father will deal with you if you are unmerciful. Hands over. There's, there's something implied in that. There's several times throughout scripture where God is described as handing people over to their sin. Which suggests that God's default mode for dealing with us is to restrain us and hold us and keep our sin from, um, from the fullest consequences of that you know, happening. He, he works to restrain our sinful impulses. right? But if we try to wriggle out of his grip persistently, he eventually lets us go. He hands us over to our sinful desires and to the consequences of those desires, right? So I don't think we should really think of God as the torturer here. And I don't even really think that we should think of the jailers as the torturer. But we should think of our sin as the torturer, right? If we insist on refusing to love, then that leads to torture, If we insist on being unforgiving and unmerciful, then at some point God allows us to be handed over to that and to the consequences of that. So last week, Jesus emphasized the importance of humility, right? When we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, how central humility is to a healthy relationship with God. And now he's emphasizing the importance of forgiveness, and mercy, which of course is closely related to humility, right? You can't forgive if you're prideful. Humility frees you uh, to be able to do that. So this is all about forgiveness, and I just want to acknowledge forgiveness is an extremely difficult topic. Every time Scripture speaks about forgiveness, I have these mixed feelings about talking about it. And the reason is not because I don't believe or agree with Jesus about forgiveness. It's just because the subject is so complicated, right? There's a lot of questions that we might have that the parable doesn't really address. Like, what does it actually look like to forgive a person, right? Um, What if the person doesn't care that they've wronged me? What if the person is dangerous? What if the person could hurt other people? What what is my responsibility in those situations? Those are really important questions. And I think it's not hard to see how an abusive person could misuse this parable to try and gain power over other people especially an abusive person in a position of power. You have to forgive me. You can't remove me from my position, right? Otherwise, God will judge you. See, you have to forgive. Well, I want to be clear. I do not think that Jesus wants this parable to be used to empower abusive people to continue using their power in abusive ways. 
I am confident of that. In fact, I think the end of the parable is evidence of that, right? This is a warning to anyone who would take advantage of grace to abuse others. It's one of the big ideas here. I also think, as I always do, it helps to put the parable in context. So, of course, right before Jesus tells this parable, he has the interaction with Peter about forgiveness. But right before that, there's something else that happens that helps to put things in perspective. So, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus gives instructions on how people in churches should handle when other people in the church sin against them. And uh, that's an interesting passage. We're not going to get into all the details. But the gist of it is that there should be a process that occurs where the person who has wronged the other person um, is spoken to, right? And there is an attempt, an attempt to reconcile. But Jesus does say that if a point is reached where the person just will not listen to reason, there comes an appropriate time for them to go separate directions, right? For fellowship to be broken and for the person to leave the church. Now, that doesn't mean that that person then should be hated or that people should seek vengeance on that person. In fact, I think Jesus is clear from the way he talks about how he would seek after one lost sheep, right? That that person still matters to God and that we should all care about that person as well that person who refuses to repent and come to their senses. Um, and that we should, we should pray in the hopes that they will eventually change mind, change course, and then come back. Right? But what Jesus teaches there is that there is a point where breaking fellowship is appropriate, where it makes sense. And then, after Jesus says that, then he tells this parable about Radical forgiveness, right? And so, I think Jesus wants us to hold these things in tension, right? The instructions for handling conflict in the church remind us that we have to protect those who have been wronged. Right? We can't just let people harm and abuse other people without any consequence at all. But we also need to recognize that breaking fellowship with somebody should absolutely be a last resort because, as the parable reminds us immediately afterward, we should be radically forgiving. Radically forgiving, right? So we have to try to hold both of these things together. That's what wisdom looks like. Our churches should be places of mercy, places that are way more forgiving than the secular world. I really believe that. I think sometimes our forgiveness should even be a little bit scandalous in the eyes of the world. Because we should be people who recognize that God has canceled our unpayable debt, that Jesus absorbed our unpayable debt on the cross, and so we want to imitate his mercy to one another. Are we like that, though? Are we more likely to cancel people or cancel debts? The parable is clear about which one we should be. Are we the kind of people who hold grudges? Are we the kind of people who are easily offended? 
Are we the kind of people who feel slighted one, two, three times, and then we say, well, that's it. You know, I think, and I'm not pointing the finger at anyone in our church. That's not what I'm doing. But I'm just saying, I think human nature is that sometimes we break fellowship with someone, not just because they sinned against us, but just because we think they're annoying. That's all it takes in some cases. I'm reminded of a story I heard from an author named Peter Rollins. He said there was a, an Irishman named Seamus who was shipwrecked. And uh, he was alone on an island for 10 years. And everyone assumed he was dead. But one day, some sailors came across the island and they found signs of life. And they realized that it was Seamus. And they found that he had constructed three buildings all by himself, three buildings. And uh, he, he walked up to one of them and he said, this is my house, built it myself. And they were like, wow, that's amazing, beautiful job. I said, yeah. And they, and they pointed to a second building and they said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's my church. That's where I worship. And then they pointed to the third building. And they said, well, what's that one? He said, oh, I don't like to talk about that. It's where I used to go to church. <laughs> so, of course, that's not real. <laughs> that's a joke. Um, but it's a joke that a lot of people immediately get, right? Because a lot of people know from experiences that churches are often places of conflict and disagreement and grudge holding. And it's only a matter of time before people go from loving a church to being like, well, I'm going to the next one. And, and the history of the church is filled with examples of that, right? Now, I don't want to suggest that there aren't good reasons for leaving churches. There certainly are. But I think that a lot of division over the ages in churches has been because of a failure to do what Jesus said to do when he said, don't just forgive your brother or sister seven times, but seven times 77. I think that if we could really take that seriously and do that, that we would have a lot more unity in our churches. Too frequently... The source of division in churches is an attitude that's just like the servant in the parable. Pay what you owe me. Pay what you owe me. That attitude can destroy our churches. It can destroy our families. And ultimately, it destroys us. And at the root of that attitude is a failure to appreciate that God has absorbed our unpayable debt. And that in relationship to God, we have a debt far greater than any debt that any person has for us. Now, I want to acknowledge, if some of us have been wronged in the worst possible ways... This parable raises tough questions about what our responsibility is. 
I mean, my goodness, you know. If somebody murdered someone you love, or if you were a victim of physical or sexual abuse, I, I acknowledge it's extremely difficult to know what exactly does forgiveness look like in that situation. And I just want to be clear that whatever forgiveness looks like, it does not look like saying, oh, that didn't matter. And it does not look like empowering the offender to repeat the offense. Okay? But before our minds focus on those kinds of offenses, those most grievous and heinous and awful things that human beings can do to each other, what we should ask is, am I willing to obey or am I willing to forgive the more ordinary offenses? Right? Because those are the kinds of offenses that more often rip apart churches and families. Right? When I feel unappreciated, Am I able to forgive that? Right? When I felt like my viewpoint was insulted, can I forgive that? Can I forgive when somebody's comment made me feel disrespected? Can I forgive when, you know, the ministry that I prefer didn't seem to get the attention that I thought it should? Those kinds of things. If we're honest, those kinds of offenses very commonly tear churches and communities apart, right? When those things happen, because they, they will happen, wherever people are, those things will happen. When they happen, do they lead us to bitterness? Do they lead us to cry out, pay what you owe me? Or do we see them as opportunities to reflect the mercy of God? Jesus says, choose to be merciful. Choose to let go of debts and forgive. Forgiveness leads to life, and unforgiveness leads to death. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of the importance of forgiveness. And it is easier to um, say we should forgive than to actually do it. And Lord, I pray if right now uh, there are people coming to our minds, people who we feel bitterness towards, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with compassion for them. Help us to look on them the way the master looked on the servant, Lord, in, in spite of that $7 billion debt. Lord, help us to be moved with compassion for them. And Lord, help us to be the kind of people who reflect your scandalous mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.